Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and everybody, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Tracy Morgan, and I am here today um, with Anna Fishson, who is a psychoanalyst and historian, and my firstborn New Books in Psychoanalysis host. Um, and um, she's on the program. <laughs> we'll get back to why I'm referring to her as not a baby, but anyway, there's a. I've got a couple of thoughts about about um, bringing on hosts. Anyway, um, so she's here on the program to share with us her thoughts um, about temporality uh, as they interface with psychoanalysis, queer thinking, theory childhood, um, all of which um, she pursued alongside Emma Lieber as they co-edited a volume called The Creative of Childhood. Uh Uh-oh, what's that, Anna? Uh, I can't turn off these notifications, but um, we're going to have notifications. (laughs) I tried very hard to turn them off. (laughs) (laughs) It's not... So back to the title of the book, um, The Queerness of Childhood, Essays from the Other Side of the Looking Glass, um, published by Palgrave and Macmillan. Um, And um, I want to sort of set things up in a certain way. So first of all, Anna is a dear friend, and I met her because of New Books and Psychoanalysis. So um, it was really, uh, I will say, a, a what is like a wonderful byproduct of, of the channel. And I'm glad to have her here today because um, on an episode about time, I'm also going to call time. So this will be my last interview program, concluding a 13-year run that began with an analyst whose last name was Freud, Hendrika, no relation to Sigmund. And I wanted to begin with Freud, and I want to end in time, on time, if I can, facing reality. And with it, in a sense... Mortality. <laughs> Not that I'm dying, but you know, like the end of something is a certain kind, a certain kind of, of death. Um, so I have, uh, you know, I, I want to say a couple of words before we get into the meat and potatoes of the interview, Anna. So if you can just bear with me, because I want to say some a couple of things to the audience, because they've been listening for a long time. <laughs> 13 years <laughs> listening for a long time. Um, uh, you know, I was when I was doing new books in psychoanalysis, and while I've been doing it over these years, my sense of time was really impacted um, in some ways that have led to my wanting to step down because I want to have a different sense of time. I felt pressured to, um, sometimes to make the channel capture a wide array of thinkers um, in our field while they were still with us, and that clock was and is still ticking. And I also wanted. It was really important to me to bring on new hosts from various schools of psychoanalytic thought, such as yourself, Anna, you know, with with your strong Lacanian background. Um, and I wanted to add different voices of the project. I thought, I think I was thinking in ecumenical terms. I used to use that term a lot within a fractured field. I wanted to create an archive for the for the for the present and for the future, thinking of time that would enrich the field of psychoanalysis and. I also wanted to invest my time to promote the work of particularly clinical psychoanalysis. Um, And um, yeah, but given my character, each interview took a lot of time. And as time passed, I felt I was allotting my time to the work of others. And I had feelings about this, eventually envy and confusion, which is a defense against some other feeling I'm, you know, (laughs) we can figure out. And, um, but they made me sort of wonder about my own understanding of time, my own time. Um, so I was always hoping to have this body of work of new books and psychoanalysis be reviewed by one of the big journals in the field, but I was unable to make that happen. That, that, that upsets me all the time, but I also want us to recall that 13 years ago when this channel started, psychoanalysts were reluctant to speak into the ether, to the other, to the uninitiated. Many refuse interviews. I feel this is an important thing for people who are listening here to, to know. So, for instance, we don't have Roy Schaefer or Philip Bromberg. They were asked, but they, they didn't want to do it. I mean, that was the case probably when you came on the channel too, Anna. There were still people were right scared to kind of talk people to Also us. because people are afraid of exposing themselves and Alizans are listening. So, right. uh, afraid of watching the transcripts. Yeah. 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. And so, you know, what I what this channel did was remarkable, I think, for its initial moment, um, you know, unedited analytic thinking exposed to the public. And, you know, analysts make, you know, slips of the tongue or remarks that they were regretted, captured from the scene. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like the analyst is sort of this real person and our patients were listening, as you say. And so I think that that this channel has existed reflects maybe a shift in the field also about like we are willing to live a little bit more in public and manage the transferences. That's kind of massive. I mean, to just note that, note that change. Um, Another thing I wanted just to say is that, you know, until very recently, New Books and Psychoanalysis was an unpaid endeavor. I hope you got paid, Anna. Did you get paid? Of course not. (laughs) It's a labor of love. You have to say it was a labor of love, but now you get, you can get money for all of your interviews that you did in the past. Um, I I have no idea. Good to know. Thank you. Yeah, (laughs) so it's good. It's going to be enough money for like, yeah, we'll go out to dinner maybe or something. I don't know, just a little bit. But, um, you know, but when I was thinking about time and money and when money is not involved, the experience, how the experience of time changes. Um, and um, one author I interviewed, Lucy Holmes Orens, um, referred to new books and psychoanalysis as my baby. So that's why I call you my firstborn, <laughs> you know, locating, yeah, sort of locating my work in maternal time. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> you are you are younger than me, and so you know I don't know how I could have managed, but I'm very happy to have you as a baby. You're great. You're how how proud I am because you're so smart and so and so fun. Um, but it, she located my work in maternal time, right? Which maybe we'll talk about um, the time of repetition, time of reproduction. Let's do it again. Time. Plug in the microphones, write the blurb, attend to the author's anxieties, and promote the finished product on social media. Repeat, repeat, repeat. And I'd like to thank Michael McAndrew and Mercer Greenwald, who have been stalwart on that front. Um, I also wanted to say another thing. I feel like I've got a couple more things to say before we, we get into hearing from you. I hope you don't mind, but as this is my last time up... Um, I did have grand plans for new books in psychoanalysis, and some of those dreams actually have been realized, which is a delight. Um, we've developed a vast international listening audience, and the work of the School of Modern Psychoanalysis that I'm a part of has perhaps had more time in the sun or on the air than it ever had before, given <laughs> given that alongside myself, there's three other hosts, Isaac DeVries, Lexa Rosian, Christopher Russell, who are also modern, who are hosts. And um, we have international hosts, Germany, England, the Ukraine, and India. Um, Those are where some of our hosts are from. Um, And um, we have never had a black host. I regret that, though, given the reorganization of the channel, which I want listeners to understand a little bit about, um, it may actually open up the door. Nepotism or, you know, white geography is kind of a a very real thing um, that makes breaking into something while black often impossible. But I spent, I did spend a lot of time cultivating hosts over the years, seducing people to work for free. And also sometimes I vetted some hosts who seemed to me not quite right for the channel. Um, and for a while we were a kind of group. Remember that? I mean, we used to meet, like have little meetings and stuff, right? Little meetings. And so I looked, I was looking for hosts who had been or still were in analysis um, because I thought that the quality of the interviews hinged on being emotionally tuned into the author's experience at some level, um, which I think has been something that people have commented on. I mean, you know, I know you've done interviews where, you know, you've had, we've had to help the author, right, to be ready, to prepare, to speak, to associate, to calm down, <laughs> all that, all that stuff. don't think... Uh process <laughs> bring somebody to to the interview <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and you and i've had a, an incredible ex- terrible experience once that we yeah. couldn't publish remember that only one only one that only one but, but one one was plenty um but you know we met and we discussed at the time what we were doing who we were going to interview uh, where we wanted the channel to go. You're so popular. All these people are emailing you, um, <laughs> you know, and over time things have changed and I'm no longer 
able to cultivate a chosen group. So the channel has become more free form where people from outside of the once cultivated group can claim books. Um, and this is true for listeners. I mean, you can think about doing this. You can decide that you want to do an interview and you can approach Marshall Poe and say that you'd like to do an interview and you can claim the book, which is fairly radical. Um, but it also became something that like didn't give me as much pleasure because I like to bring us together and to get us to think together about what the, what we were doing. Um, so like now we used to do 50 minute interviews and now they can be hours long. Um, we have a lot of cross posts from psychology, self-help Buddhism. And I'm, I am a fucking purist. Okay. So like, if you know, I don't, I'm, that's not my favorite thing, but I know that people like it as well. Um, and, um, I guess just in closing, I wanted to let, um, Avgi set up, Seketapolu know that she should be, and I believe will be interviewed by an analyst. Uh, I, and that's a whole other controversy, and I'm sure that this will get to her. And I want to thank Marshall Poe, head of the New Books Network, for trusting me to create this channel and to allow it to have a focus on psychoanalysis. Um, about 14 years ago, he asked me to do a channel on psychology, and I said, I don't know anything about psychology. I'm pretty sure I know nothing about it, but I was very immersed in psychoanalytic thinking. He was a little hesitant and said, okay, go ahead. <laughs> so over time, we have about 40,000 downloads a month or something like that. Um, I leave New Books and Psychoanalysis uh, knowing it has become one of the jewels of the New Books Network. And, um, and that that's uh, very, very meaningful to me. And I, I wish it a long and prosperous um, time. I'm, I'm hoping to go on to create another podcast that's more about fun and irreverence and psychoanalysis and le- like less serious. That's that's kind of my dream. Is to have it's going to be fun. thematic, Tracy? I don't know. I mean, it could be, you know, like I do think that anything analysts do is kind of funny because we are like reformed in some ways and we're not, I always think we're not ready for polite company, you know, like given what we hear, you know? So I wanted, you know, I mean, even just like psychoanalysts go to the movies, it would be funny because we would say the most, you know, I mean like the things that we talk about to each other, analysts tell all are, I think that we're, we're, we're deformed in very, in a very um, beautiful way. Uh, as as people and um you know we have a sense of the absurd uh pretty powerful so anyway thank you for that just for hanging with me during that anna because i just wanted to thanks for inviting me yeah well it's just really nice for me to have you here for you bringing things to i was a big fan of yours when when the whole thing started and then i became a host for a while and it was it was a great time so yeah yeah, fitting yeah, yeah. for doing this yeah. together. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I don't know. Let's talk about time. I know you've always said to me, you know, well, I'm interested in temporality. I was like, what is, oh, yeah, it's time. That's what temporality <laughs> means. I was like, <laughs> okay, right, right, right. And, you know, you have this volume out, The Queerness of Childhood. You have an essay on, which I really loved, on the wait, like on, on Brezhnev era, you know, Soviet Union cues and waiting on the cues and cue time, queer time. I mean, if you want to talk about that essay, that's fine. But I, but I think more like you're a big thinker. Um, so, well, no, <laughs> I think I think you are. <laughs> now, that was now. I have to say something. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> say something big about time. All right, no, so just. Yeah, I, I'd like to. Well, what are you I, thinking about time? Yeah, let's hear it. Um, what, what attracted me, I'll say this what attracted me to the idea of queer time was, uh, well, first of all, before I wrote this book, I wrote a book about opera. And as opera lovers know, in opera, time is very much stretched and it can be vertical as well as horizontal. There's a kind of narrative and the plot that goes in a linear way. And then there are sometimes depends, depending on the century of the opera's origin, there are um, cuts and there are arias. And it's more about a reflective inward um, 
kind of looking time or temporality and it, it feels kind of sacred. It's, it's like, um, it's not that time stops, but time is stretched and made extraordinary. And so there's like sort of quotidian time in this extraordinary time. And I'm very aware of this or I've been aware of this for a long time. And then uh, when I was working on Soviet, late Soviet childhood and animation, I noticed that time was a big theme in these um, children, this culture seemingly made for children, but also always for adults, for a dual audience. As we know, children's culture often does address a kind of other audience and a nudge wink to a, to a more adult audience. And especially, this was especially true in the Brezhnev period where um, there was a lot of censorship. State censorship um, disabled people in certain areas. To, you, know, you couldn't say everything in a so-called adult um, or, or, you know, just like film, feature films, etc. So people worked in animation and could get things through in a kind of Aesopian language. But at any rate, there, so there was this big theme of time. And, and I thought about why and, and, and also this idea of time as being stretched, of being non-normative, of being kind of um, uh, shaped in one's um, subjectively rather than objectively kind of strange in a country where you know there was it was committed to communism and seemingly there was this linear march toward progress so anyway this is what kind of brought everything together and of course there's the literature on queer temporality which has many exponents but the main one i i liked was uh jack halberstam's idea um which is the the sort of um and, and this came out originally with Eve Sedgwick in the wake of the AIDS epidemic or during the AIDS epidemic, where the horizon, the future was cut short. And so, so people tried to expand and live in the compressed moment, as Jack said. And uh, yeah. Right. So the time of the- and of course, psychoanalysis, throw that in there, right? It's a queer temporality, the analytic session. Yeah. Yeah. How, well, say more about that. Unpack that. I think that's an interesting idea. What what makes it queer? Um, so, psychoanalytic time. Of course, there. You know, it's it's basically nonlinear. Freud first introduced this. It's not. People attribute this to Laplanche. You know, après coup, afterwardness, um, where a second event retroactively shapes a first event. But of course, it's a very Freudian idea, and then Lacanian idea as well. Uh, with Nashraglikite. So there's this idea of retroaction. And all of a sudden being, I think in the, in the analytic session, it can be an, um, a sudden awareness of this retroaction and a kind of disruption of linearity. Also because we talk about the past in the present and sometimes they, in an analytic session, they kind of bleed into one another. Um so when you just and you, when you disrupt linear time, you disrupt a lot of things, you know, identity, gender, etc. So there's things kind of break apart, and maybe new combinations emerge. And that's in a sense. So it's time and temporality, and issues of temporality are very important to psychoanalytic experience, really. And I've heard this from patients, and it's been my own experience in analysis as well. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. What do you, think, Tracy? Yeah. You know well, what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I, I, I do, I do. Um, I'm thinking about um, a, a, an essay that I adore called "Wasting Time in Analysis," <laughs> and it's by uh, by June Bernstein, and she was an instructor of mine. And it's it's a it's like the, one of these essays, an analytic essay. It really makes you laugh because her sense of her grasp of the absurdity of you know, uh, she, she begins the essay saying something like, or no, ends the essay, something like an epilogue, a thousand years in an, a thousand years of analysis. <laughs> and she, she says something like, um, being in analysis is a great waste of time, but not being in analysis is an even greater waste of time. You know? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you just, Perfect. like, like and yeah, and then pa- patients come or ourselves as patients, you know, say like, when is this done? You know, I, I sometimes yeah, yeah. think I, yeah, when is it going to be done yesterday? They're like, yesterday I was done. Why <laughs> was am done I here today? <laughs> <laughs> right. 
<laughs> it's back, we're back on again today because I'm not done today, but I was done yesterday. What happened in the last, in the passage of time in this 24 hour period? You know, I mean, it's, it's, um, and sometimes I think that an analysis is all about, right? Like getting at, like, like thinking about, thinking about time. When is this done? Like at being such a central question, how much longer do I have to stay here? You know, and like feeling those questions and thinking through those, you know, when patients ask that, there's so much in that. Like working working with newer clinicians and like supervising and stuff, it's like they the patient says that they 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 think that they should be better by now and they, they want to leave. And I said, Well, talking about leaving is the center is the absolute centerpiece of the analysis. Because it 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 it's somehow it's so animating. Can I can I can I leave? And what would happen if I leave? And and what would happen to my sense of my myself, my sense of time? Um, am I wasting my time? I mean, patients are. I think I'm wasting my time today. It's like okay. <laughs> I, I, yes, I do hear that on occasion. It is absolutely yeah. something here. I've wasted yeah. the yeah. session. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I've wasted the session as if I I can know that because I didn't say anything that made me feel better or I didn't say anything that I feel like I haven't said here before you know it's like and it's like here's you know welcome welcome to the rep welcome to the repetition which of course is an interesting <laughs> thing to think about in terms of time right like the repetition right. well that's compulsion. the other aspect right there are different um temporalities of psychoanalysis one is retroaction another is repetition uh this idea that yes the compulsion to repeat but we never repeat the same way there's always a, a slate you know yes it's an and things accrue and it's an iterative process and and uh it's a very slow painful process as well <laughs> and it takes a lot of time it takes a thousand yeah, years Mm-hmm. But I, I'm very attracted. I think that's why I'm attracted to opera. I'm, I'm very attracted to these kind of temporalities or experiences of time where things are stretched and it does feel kind of endless and, and there's new new things emerge and you don't have to worry about the fact that it's, you know, a waste. Right, 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 right. right. You can, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a, you know, there's sorry, I just want to say this one thing about Elizabeth Freeman, who came up with this idea of chrononormativity. So and, and this is where we're so trapped in that so often where uh, it's capitalist time, you know, how I don't know how else to say it, but we're on the clock and it's someone else's clock and it's and we have to go and we have to make progress. Um, we have to develop uh, and. So anyway, to disrupt those, and it's historical time, and it's um, normative time, it's generational time, and sometimes to disrupt this is, can be quite subversive. That's right, yeah, and it's the not, um, I think, who's, is it on time, David Harvey, the con- not noticing time, I'm trying to remember, time as a construct, you know, like, it's not even, th- like, to even begin to think about time it really stayed with me years ago. You said, well, I'm very interested in temporality. And, and, you know, we both have backgrounds as historians. And I was like, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> like, how do, how do we think about time? Most of the time, I think I don't have any time. Where's my time? I'm running out of time. Um, this is, you know, I'm so, this is an anxious time. This is a private time. And there's all these ways in which I, you know, have been paying attention and preparing to speak today, the last like month, you know, it's like this great immersion. I was like thinking about how I'm listening to people talk to me about time and what I'm saying to people about time. Um, And it's kind of sad in a way. Like I feel like so much of what I hear from people about time is um, that they don't have it. You know, like it's like, well, of course we were having it, but a feeling of not having time. And then I'm going to, there's a little quote that I, I think I sent you this song, which I, of course, preparing for an interview, everything becomes about the interview, you know, and if, if things are going well. And um, I found this song by Lou Reed and it's called Turning Time Around. And it's, the, it's so beautiful. I want to share it here, a little bit of it here and a little bit of with, with for you and for the listeners, because it, it touched me. Um, he's, this, he, I'm not going to sing it because I'm not Lou Reed. But anyway, she says, what do you call love? Well, I call it Harry. Oh, please, I'm being serious. What do you call love? Well, I don't call it family. 
but I don't call it lust. I think he's saying this to Lori to Anderson. And, and as we all know, marriage isn't a must. And I suppose in the end, it's a matter of trust. If I had to, I'd call love time. I just, it fills me up with some, you know, and, and then, then there's another line. And when you're in love, you don't have to ask. There's never enough time to hold love in your grasp. My time is your time when you're in love. And time is what you never have enough of. You can't see it or hold it. It is that it is exactly like love. I was like, whoa, <laughs> I don't know. I just, I, you know, mm-hmm. like, like what, love, like, so, like, love yeah, I mean, this, this kind of idea of love as time. And I think he means that maybe the progression of time as opposed to time in suspension, which is right. the way that love can be idealized is like, especially young love where time stops and the two lovers are, this, you know, this is the depiction, right? Yeah. But he, it's not really about that, is it? <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, no. It's it, that, that, correct. I, I mean, I, but it was just so, star- I was like love and time and, and giving the, you know, the experience, right. The experience of young love and young love over time. Uh, it just got, it just got, so <laughs> and I'd never heard the song before, you know, but I was like, what's this? Somehow I was talking I to somebody. You were gonna, Tracy, I thought you were going to play the, the song. Oh, I'm going to play a song at the very end. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, my God. No, okay. Kidding, but I thought at the end it's better because, well, the, let's not, let's not give, let's not give it away. But anyway, there will be, there will be a song. I won't be singing it. Um, it might sound a little, a little funny. Um, so anyway, um, I, I guess I'm thinking about, um, one of the things that struck me about your essay, and I was thinking about people waiting on lines and the queue and the sense of, um, of course, it becomes a queer time because it's, in a way, a queer sensibility is like, an, an, to my mind, is always an, abra- an embrace of like the absurd. Like here we are standing in line waiting for our, uh, you know, whatever, our, our, our food, our this, our that. And the, the, the way in which when I'm on a line, I end up having conversations with strangers, right? If you're on, waiting on a long line, it sort of creates, um, and, and everybody's frustrated and you're managing these really difficult feelings of frustration and, and wasted time. And I was like, there's something that lends itself to sort of a, like almost a camp, like like a camp. You know, it's like it, things get. Um, I don't know. I, I I wanted. I just was thinking like it's a very it's a very sort of campy moment where people are online and they're very satirical and they're very you know say crazy things to each other on the line. You know, when you're sort of when you're sort of stuck in time with others, not knowing when you're going to be. Like I, I experience this in Italy all the time. Oh my god, where all you do is wait online. Yeah, <laughs> it's like you just like the increasingly, in, increasingly in New York, we're waiting in line, but I there's all there's all kinds of lines, right? There's there's a line. Uh, I was thinking about the rush ticket line, or to, to get concert tickets, or to get opera tickets, and then people get to share their fandom and get to talk about productions, and you know, it's been. Um, Wayne Kestenbaum wrote about cruising on the opera ticket, rush ticket line. And of course he would. I'm like, this never, why does this ever happen to me? You know, like, what, why, why don't I never solve it? Uh, so, so there's, there's this. And, but the idea is in, in the case of like, I talk about late socialism and it became such a standard kind of, it became such a, um, Mm, a daily experience and often you would just line up for the sake of lining up you would see a line you don't know what it's for but it must be something important so you would line up because it's an economy of scarcity uh, maybe it was like this during covid at, t- at moments i don't know but so so people, you line up you don't know why and then things can emerge surprising things can happen situational uh, intimacies can occur so uh, this is, and I think this is what part of what you were talking about, Trace. And there is a kind of campy aspect, right? But I think um, surprise, surprises, and I even, again, to bring it back to psychoanalysis, I think that there's something in the analytic session, as the analyzant is, is talking, it almost mimics that this because you know, pe- others' speech enters your speech, you tell stories, 
And before you know it, you know, things just, uh, this is what free associating is. Something pops up and it's a complete surprise. Why did I think of that? You know, what happened right, there? Right, right, right. right, right. Where did that, I did, I'm so surprised I said that. I, I didn't ever th- know that. I didn't know that I, that I thought that. Uh, yeah. There's a, there's a sense of, um, sort of run, like wait, you're, you're like, you're, you come into analysis and you are just waiting on the line, time on the line and seeing, and seeing what emerges in the little spate of time. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just switched the time actually for my patients. I just moved, uh, not everyone, but almost I'm slowly moving people to 45 minute sessions. I've done 50 minute sessions forever because that's what was done to me. And I recently um, am experiencing an, a, an analytic session myself that's 45 minutes. I'm not like such a copycat. I do whatever my analyst does. Oh, <laughs> I'm down to 45 minutes. <laughs> and, and I'm. Yeah, they must. Be, they must be angry. They lost five minutes. <laughs> some of them. Some of them have. Lost, yeah, I'm slowly working my way through, and people are losing their. You know, the five minutes. I'm introducing the idea. Of course, I'm waiting for you know what feels like a right moment in people's treatments to like say it because it's not so crucial. But the, but I'm listening to what my patients have to say about this feeling of having lost lost some time. Mostly though, they seem to kind of like it that it's. Yeah, it's like not this like you've ripped me off five minutes. But, I mean, some patients have said, "So am I going to get a discount?" You know, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right, no, 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 no discount. <laughs> I'll just have more time in between sessions to pee and you know do the things that, <laughs> and to think so, about you, <laughs> right, right, and to think about you and and then right and that the, that New York Times thing on therapy, just like what a therapist do in the five minutes in between. Oh my god, um, in between sessions. You know, but I, I, yeah, I've, I've experienced time a little bit differently, like without the extra five minutes myself, I feel the difference. And I'm like, okay, I'm a little more, um, I'm a little more nimble or something like things are coming forth. Like there's a little more, there's a little pressure. Um, and it's, it can, it, it, you know, can, it has been a, perhaps a little, a little bit productive, um, you know, but I mean, <laughs> There's, um, you know, is psycho is psychoanalysis? Um, what the hell? What's his name? Adrian Johnson. Something about psychoanalysis is a discourse on the, the subject's relationship to temporality, right? I was like, yeah, that's. I like that. I think that that's just sort of a something I yeah. think about a lot. I mean, if you can reach back into the past and then make links to the present, this isn't this what mm-hmm. the work is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about, you know, like the, the, I was thinking about the different schools of analytic thought and, you know, like the here and now, right? People who are really working here and now versus people who, like, someone said to me recently, well, should I take a history of the patient? And I, I said, well, you could, you know, but you could also just, my idea would be that the patient will show you their history in the first session by how they show up, what they say, how they hold themselves, um, where they look, you know, you get the history right, right there. Um, and, you know, versus, you know, other schools of thought really take very seriously, like, you know, let's get the history and they'll spend several sessions. Um, right. And I mean, yeah, yeah. Some, some Lacanians are very, maybe surprisingly are, are very committed to that. To history, yeah. Yeah, to yeah. the history in the beginning to figure out the signifiers, where they are, where the nodal points are for the patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind but of it, map, it map, map that, yeah, that structures yeah. the analysis later, yeah. Yeah, but it's interesting because it's like sort of reaching for the imaginary right right away. It's like, okay, tell me your history. And it's like, oh. And, you know, at, at, the, same, at the same time that it, it could sort of – you know, collapse free, some free association and a different use of time. I mean, because some patients come in with their history, you know, they have their history and they like to talk about their history very unfreely. Yes. You know, right. It's the same story they've told. Yeah. Over and over. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's my time, my time for it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But it's, you know, yeah, right. The the idea is to transform it obviously, but yes. Well, let's yeah. talk a little bit about childhood. And I mean, since you've done this book on, on you know, the queerness of, of childhood, what, 
can, can I think I think it would be interesting to hear about like uh, what what is queer about childhood? <laughs> I mean, what 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 when you guys were putting this book of essays together um, from many different you know thinkers. Um, what what is what is queer about childhood? Is is childhood queer? Uh, what if why why queer it? Why not? You know? I think I mean one way to approach this question is to think about the fact that I mean immediately what jumps out is that childhood is a retroactive creation. Children never think about themselves as children, or they they do, but they don't think about their childhood. Um, childhood is something that adults dreamt up. And when does childhood end? And this idea of a beginning and an end and and how you're supposed to kind of in increments approach something that is, let's say, sexual maturity or the ability to, you know, to be in, in um, to use money, to work, all the things that have been held in suspension. Uh, but then you're not, you're supposed to kind of never enter those things as, as a child. And yet you're supposed to keep moving closer. And how do you manage this? So it's the time of delay. I mean, this is what, um, you know, some theorists have, have put forward. It's a time of delay, but, but you don't want to delay it too much or too little, you know, this is, this is a very difficult uh, problem. And also, you know, the way that psychoanalysis thinks about childhood it started with Freud in three essays or earlier, and there are two ways of thinking about it developmentally and um, as something that, and polymorphously perverse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you yep. know, you're either moving along a timeline and everything is linear and you go from one phase to, to another, from the oral to the anal to the phallic to the Oedipal to the genital, whatever it is, right? So... But the other way of thinking about it is that there's this polymorphous perversity that never really goes away. And we all have this kind of um, tendency to stray, to delay, to, to go in various directions. And, um, and Catherine Stockton, you know, writes about this. And I, she's also <laughs> oh, in the volume. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She does. She did the epilogue, didn't she, for the book? I think she right. did, and she did the epilogue. Correct. Yeah, the fi- the final chapter. Is, um, she's a great. Um, I really like her. Very, very. Um, I don't know. Something about her writing just strikes me as um, very free. <laughs> you know how she, yeah. she how she yeah how she phrases things, what she feels free to say. It's um, it was pretty pretty enlivening. Um, ending. Also, I, you know, I, I just want to say too that she she sort of queered childhood. She she was she wrote from the, as a queer theorist about childhood, for and I think Freud did it before her. But I think you know this was this was a seminal work in queer theory, and it was the first, It was maybe one of the first times that there were other people who did this, but the queer theory took seriously. They didn't just treat children as this like normative, you know, like like Lee Edelman did. Um, as something we have to kind of avoid if we want to be real queers and if we want to avoid the normative and not to be trapped in this sort of like children are the future, blah, blah, you know, (laughs) his line. She said, no, the children are the weird, queerest, like, you know, creatures. Mm -hmm. Oh, they're strange. You know, like it's like constantly thinking, like, well, you've just given birth to a stranger. I mean, you know, the reluctance of right. Well, and that's pretty queer, um, you know. But it's it's like like accepting, like, well, I'm now giving birth to a stranger who I I have to get to know, and of course I don't like that idea. So I assume that this stranger is really like me, um, and yet, you know, the you know kid grows up and remains at some level, you know, their their own their own wild animal um of sorts you know did you read have you read um what's her name i'm gonna say her last name incorrectly she's british lisa barreitzer i think it is an enduring time have you gotten ever (coughs) excuse me that's my long covid just a minute (coughs) no joke seriously i think that that's what it is it's weird but anyway living with it um living with it over time um she's tries to build a relationship like she's critiquing Edelman and trying to build a relationship between 
um, the the rep the death drive, right? Which Edelman really, you know, kind of as as I understand his thinking is sort of the centerpiece of um, his work, no future, and she's trying to link up maternal time. Um, which is the time of repetition, the time of do it, you know, as uh, do it again, time, you know, and and building a a bridge between the two, which I I thought was you know kind of kind of productive, um, you know, but but yeah, her book is really it's it's interesting, Anna, in that it's about um, uh, time that doesn't move. <laughs> it's about maintaining, you know, remaining, um, sustaining. It's it's almost it's kind of like you know, a, like a John Cage recording of like you know the the street as music. You know, it's like okay, she's trying to capture um, this time that goes deeply um, unaccounted for. But one of her, her and the book is sort of depressing in a way because um, she keeps she reminds us again and again. And I wonder what you think about this, but. She says the uh, talking about development. Um, she she says it's you know the future um, a future as development has shifted a development the idea of development in the future has shifted psychologically become emptied of its affective qualities. This is a quote from her such such as hope anticipation longing or the promise of satisfaction and betterment. The future will come for some, she writes, but it will bring no fulfillment on the promises of the now. Um, so it's, it's like this book about like how, I mean, what made me think about like Halberstam does ask the question, what's the relationship between, um, uh, you know, sort of gender transitivity, transgenderism in relationship to postmodern understandings of time and space and, you know, sort of, uh, which but both of these sort of ideas are, um, you know, they're rich. I mean, I'd like to have more time. I do think that maybe it's about the breaking down of linear time because the more, you know, when linear time, again, when it, when it breaks down or it gets disrupted, uh, so does identity because identity or the self, what we think about as the self is constructed in time and in the, in a kind of progression and I mean, this is the novel, this is the autobiography, this is, so when there's uh, something like COVID, you know, a pandemic, or there's, there, there are events, uh, traumatic, catastrophic, or maybe just, you know, something quite personal that disrupts one's idea about time, I think it can be quite actually productive uh, for the person. It doesn't have to be this kind of despairing abyss, or at least this was the original, uh, Jack's original idea and uh, this kind of, I mean, it's its kind of, I hate to say this because it's like, it's a little bit facile here, but it's like this YOLO kind of stuff. Like, yeah, <laughs> sorry. That was, that was a bad association. I strike that from the record. Maybe you can edit that out. <laughs> we don't both. edit anything here, as you know. So. <laughs> I, know I actually do know that. I don't have the time. Because I don't have enough time Maybe to do that. Things have changed. Now you edit and post. I guess you don't. Okay. No, I, there's, there's still no editing. People ask, but they can ask all they want. But we say, no, we don't have the time. Because um, we just we just don't have, we don't have the means, we don't have the time, and, you know, time is of the essence, so we're sorry. Just, you know, just hold, hold your tongue if you think you might say something you don't want to be. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> be available for the rest of time. I mean. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's like, and here we are doing this on Memorial Day, talking about time and you know, giving our time. Here we are. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know anything you know else you want to say because we, you know, we have another whatever. We have just a little bit of time left, and we have a song we're gonna do. Um, anything that like, what are you, what are you working on now? I'd like to ask you that because I know that there's something that you're oh, working on. I do you want to talk? About I'm writing a kind of it's I, I would rather kind of uh, keep it shrouded in mystery, but um, I think it, it's a before you answer. Wait, wait, no, before you answer, I want to make sure you want to say this. So just take a moment, a little take a little time. Yeah, to I'm going to I'm going to frame it as um, it's it's somewhat autobiographical, but also very meditate. It's a meditation on mourning and about loss. And 
um, yeah, very personal loss, but also loss of a country, now loss of two countries in a way, because I'm from originally from Ukraine. Uh, and I studied Russia um, for a long time. And so, so I weave together various losses, personal, political, um, bodily, etc. And, and, um, and think about it analytically. That's sad. Yeah. What does it mean to think about it that way? Mm-hmm. No, no, no. I was, I was actually. I mean, thank you for giving us a little, you know, a little peek, and um, and that's that's great. Um, and I'm sure people will be excited to and look forward to reading um, what you write. Um, one of the things that you say in, in the piece that really was haunting to me was sort of a sense of like the death of the Soviet Union produced some melon, a kind of melancholy, and that the late. This is a quote: "The late socialist child did not grow up." I was like, what? I, you know, it was new to me, right? I mean, okay, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not a person who you know, knows her her Russian history, but and about the loss of a the loss of a, of a country that no longer exists. I mean, it it, it was really, uh, I don't know. I was, I mean, I appreciated reading your piece because it helped me to put some put something together that I I kind of didn't, I kind of knew but didn't know. Um, about sort of the the Soviet Union and and the you know like all of these the the, the fu- you know there was the future change the past change what you could hold on to and you've you know you 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 know about this very well and I you know and I I don't know it just was just very thought provoking the late socialist child did not grow up yeah, I mean there was also a utopia and um, the idea of utopia. And the child is a kind of repository of all of these hopes and utopian dreams. And there were all kinds of um, socialist rituals that revolved around children, young pioneers, the Komsomol, the, you know, these youth movements. Uh, a lot of people that very nostalgically remember their Soviet childhoods. They seem, you know, sort of idyllic. And, and uh, it's strange to then integrate that. If you're if you're a refugee like me, you came here as an immigrant, as a refugee, and what do you do with this childhood? You see yourself dressed up in, you know, there's a portrait of Lenin behind you. You're like in this folk Ukrainian outfit, um, reciting a poem about socialism, and this is absolutely bizarre <laughs> to a lot of Americans. Yeah. 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 Well, me being one of them, right. I was like, wow. Yeah. That was, that was, it, it was as if, in fact, I think my, you know, American upbringing was that there were no, there were no children in the Soviet Union. I think that was kind of a message that I had gotten that there they weren't children. They were other than children. They were, they were small people. Um, yes. But, but was there a childhood there? And I kind of recall like part, maybe part of like cold war, anti-communist culture, um, putting forth the idea that, that, you know, people in the Soviet Union had been robbed of, of childhood. And instead you bring, you bring to us this, uh, gold, how do you say Goluboy? Goluboy Shchinok. Yeah. It's yeah. a blue. <laughs> As beautiful. Yeah. These sort of like artifacts from your, your childhood. Um, and, their importance to you and also their sort of queer, um, you know, containing sort of queer messages. Why do I have to be so blue? Goluboy is blue. And Goluboy also, you say in the article, is a word to indicate homosexuality, queerness, gayness. Yeah, Uh, it was was primarily in the 80s that it became very widely used to say, you know, gay, it's, it's basically a word for gay. It's like saying, it's not the nicest, it's not exactly derogatory, but it's it, it was appropriated, so it's it's a difficult word. Um, and I think it, it kind of, uh, I'm not sure it's still kind of used now, but um, it was definitely of a certain era. And so it was weird that this, this, this cartoon was about a misfit uh, puppy and his coat was blue, and so this is this is the main. Um, and then he finds a, a companion. Yeah, he finds a companion, another 
uh, a sailor, actually. <laughs> right? um, Perfect. Okay. I'm saying there has to be some connotation there. It cannot. I mean, I can't prove it, but my God, you know. What are you doing <laughs> running around with that sailor? <laughs> yes. Your yeah. blue, your blue fur, etc. So, um, well, listen, I do have to bring us to a close, and I am gonna just like try to see if I can make something work. I've never done this with a song, but I have it on my. I just I sent it to myself, and I think it's gonna work. So hold on one second, everybody, because I want to leave um, us with a song. Goodbye now. <laughs> well, no, just just wait one oh. sec. Let's. Is it telling me? Right. Is it? Yeah, we're getting close. Okay, is it all right? Don't play. Oh my god. <laughs> Carol Burnett. And then she would say, holding her ear, good night, everybody. Anyway, I just wanted to share that um, with the listeners. And I just, um, I'm really glad um, we've had this time together, Anna, you and I. Um, And um, yeah, it's really um, just great to to hear you speak. And I always learn from you um, and you're you're erudite. (laughs) You really are. So I, I value that. And um, and I just want to say goodbye to everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned and, you know, to other interviews and other interviewers. The, the channel continues and um, we'll bring you a lot to listen to. And and uh, I'll let you know somehow if um, I pull a, a more irreverent and fun, um, witty and absurd, <laughs> psychoanalytically oriented. Thank you, Tracy. Okay. Love you, Anna. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody.